Hello, imperfect listeners. It's your host, Luke West, back with another episode where we discuss masculinity and manhood more intentionally and purposefully. On this episode, my guest is Eldra Jackson. We're going to get into his bio in a bit. But on this episode, we talk about his time in prison, his time in what he did in prison to become the man he is today, the work that he did, the idea and desire to be respected in prison, life in solitary confinement. He went to prison with Charles Manson, one of the most notorious crime bosses, crime lords ever. Um, So we're going to get into all of that. And I wanted to stress again, he's got an amazing documentary and TED talk. Um, The TED talk is on Instagram. You can just type in Eldra Jackson TED talk for more information, but they've also got a documentary called The Work. It's available on YouTube, Amazon Prime, and a few other places. And I want to give or pay for 10 people to watch this documentary. So if you're a listener, If you want to hear or see the work that they did in this documentary called The Work, message me at The Imperfect Pod or email me luke at theimperfectpod.com saying that you want to watch it and I will either e-transfer you like six bucks, the money it costs to to listen to it or watch it because it's it's just that powerful of work and we reference it a bit in the episode. So make sure to check that out if you can. Yeah, now we'll get into the episode with Eldra. Hello, Imperfect listeners. I'm here today with Eldra Jackson III. He is a writer, sought-after public speaker on the topics of at-risk youth advocacy, effective criminal justice rehabilitation, and turning around toxic masculinity. Eldra brings clarity of purpose, mission, focus, and inspiration to his role at Inside Circle. He himself was an inmate at New Folsom Prison when he found Inside Circle and began the interpersonal journey that eventually led to his release in 2014 and his current leadership role. He is a living example of successful rehabilitation and reentry, and Eldra has dedicated his free time on the outside to serving at-risk youth acting as a facilitator, trainer, and mentor for organizations like Youth Empowerment and Goals Association, Shoulder to Shoulder, and the Alternatives to Violence Project. Inside Circle itself empowers system-impacted people to lead change from within by building transformative environments, both inside and outside adult and juvenile detention centers. They heal trauma, build life skills, train mentors, facilitators, and coaches with the lived experience to effectively divert incarceration and support the justice involved and public at large in transforming their lives and the systems they function within. So Eldra, I'm very excited for you to be here today with me today and really excited for our conversation. Well, thank you, uh, Luke. It's an honor and a privilege to be here and thank you for extending the invitation to have me. So everyone, for context, Eldra has an amazing TED Talk that I highly recommend that you watch that will give some background work to this episode as well. And also an amazing documentary called The Work. The first 10 people that DM me from listening to this episode, I will pay for you to watch The Work. It is that powerful of a documentary. Um on Instagram at the imperfect pod, shoot me a message if you want it, and I'll pay for you to watch this. So, Eldra, I just wanted to ask you, how are you showing up today? I feel like that's a question I've heard you ask other people, and I wanted to ask that of yourself. How am I showing up today? I'm showing up. It, I guess it's perfect that I'm on the imperfect podcast today. I'm showing up as imperfect. I'm showing up as someone who is dedicated and committed to living a life of purpose and stepping into what feels like my natural life calling. And I'm not always perfect at it, though I would love to be. But what I am doing and how I'm showing up is committed to continuing to get up, dust myself off and move forward because this work is just that important to not just me, but I feel the world. 
And coming from someone who saw the work that you're doing, it is very important. And one of the questions I always ask my guests too is, who is one person, dead or alive or fictional, that you would want to have over for dinner? And what would you cook for them? One person, dead or alive, that I would want to have over for dinner and what would I cook for them? Huh, that's a good question. Hmm. I, I yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this doesn't piss people off and they stick around long enough to hear what the thinking is around that. But Adolf Hitler. I'd like to have Adolf Hitler over for dinner. And what I would cook for him is I'd get my grandmother's Louisiana recipe for gumbo and I'd cook him that for dinner. What's the logic and reasoning behind that choice? The logic and reasoning behind that choice is I've done some reading about that uh, individual and his past before he, you know, became the world famous figure, historical figure that, that he did. And I recognize the pain that the little boy went through, that the child went through. And the reasoning for having him at the dinner table is to sit in circle with him and provide a space where he could just be open and honest with himself about what was truly going on within him before he became the Fuhrer. When he was just little Adolf and he needed love and wanted to be accepted and did not receive that. And I recognize in myself how traumatic events in my childhood contributed to uh, very destructive and reckless choices that I made moving forward in life. That's where that's coming from. That transitions perfectly to my next question because it's about the topic of childhood trauma. And what I found fascinating in all of your language of all the interviews and shows and, and videos that I've seen you do is that you talk about this idea of being incarcerated long before you were in prison. So can you explain a little bit about what that means and what you, your opinion on that childhood trauma that led you down the path that you got started on? Well, when I speak about being imprisoned long before I was ever physically in shackles. I'm talking about prison of the mind, prison of the spirit, prison of the emotions, and suffering childhood trauma, suffering abuse at the hands of babysitters that informed how I saw myself, that informed how I saw others. And, and at the, you know, the very tender age of seven, eight, nine years old, I made decisions about who I was based on those experiences. I made decisions about who other people were based on those experiences. And from those decisions that I made and, and self-talk that was developed around those decisions, I imprisoned myself. I put myself into a box. At a very young age, I determined based on my experiences, that being open and being vulnerable were dangerous. Caring and loving were things that were not safe. And so I imprisoned myself behind beliefs that caring about others was a detriment, was something that put me in harm's way. Having compassion for others was something that was a weakness and that put me behind the bullseye. So that is what informed me and that is the prison that I built within myself, in my head, in my heart, in my spirit and move forward in life until I eventually wound up serving life in the California prison system. And for context, what was the uh, choice you made or part of the, the 
reasons that got you into prison in the first place? Because I, I know that you were in juvenile through the ages of 14 and 18 as well. So mm-hmm. what was kind of that buildup that got you even into high maximum security prison? Well, the buildup, it goes back to what I call the original sin and starting to make the decisions and looking for what I thought was respect looking for what I valued as a persona to be able to hide and present to the world. And I used to be able to do that on the sports field. I, I used to be a hell of a baseball player. I used to be able to do that out on the out on the sport. And people saw, you know, somebody on the pitcher's mound, on first base, at shortstop, on third, out in center field, and that's who I was. And uh, there came a time when I was 13, 14 years old, and me and one of my buddies stole his mom's car and, re- and, and we wrecked it. And, and in doing so, it put my parents in a position to uh, discipline me for that summer. And a part of that discipline was there would be no sports. There would be no baseball. And the choice that I made as a result of their choices was to go out in the gutter and pick up gangbanging, crack slang, and a host of other things that were against the California Penal Code, and that started my life of crime. And going out into the gutter and picking that up, picking up the persona of a gangster, for me, it was a way to hide who I was, and it was a way to get respect from my peers. In your work, you talk a lot about the idea and the framework of toxic masculinity. How did you see that toxic masculinity embedded into you from that early age? Like, did you know when you were that young kind of what that image and what that those ideas of men were doing to you or did you learn that once you went through a little bit more self-work no i uh, of course i had no way of knowing what that was then i mean you know just the term toxic masculinity is what four or five years old Mm. And, and I'm 49. I'm kicking 50 in the ass. And that's just the way it was during those times. And in some places, that's just the way it is now. And when I say just the way it was, I mean, you know, boys don't cry. Men are responsible for taking care of the women. Men are strong. Men are tough. You know, you tough it out. You get an injury, especially athletes playing on the field. Tough it out. You know, leg it out. Rub some salt on that shit and keep moving. You don't show uh, uh, fear, you don't show injury, you don't show weakness, because if you do, your opponent, your enemy, whatever, your adversary will capitalize on that and they will seize the day and they will kill you. And these were the sorts of messages that I was taking in. I'm a child of the 70s. I grew up during the Cold War era. There used to be a thing called the USSR that was the big opponent of the US. I grew up hiding under desks for drills because, you know, we're preparing for nuclear bombs to be dropped on us and hiding under this wooden desk is going to save my ass. You know, I I grew up in those eras. I grew up watching a lot of violence and, and being enraptured in a lot of fear. And it was the man's role to go out and protect. It was the man's role to go out and fight. It was the man's role to be strong. My father was in the military. He served in Vietnam. He was a drill sergeant. He was a trainer of men. He was a trainer of soldiers. So these are the sorts of messages that I, I, I received in the household that I grew up and informed what my beliefs were about what it meant to be strong, what it meant to have respect, what it meant to be a man. And so now you're in prison. Do you carry that mentality of wanting to be respected into prison? And if so, what did that look like to you? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I definitely carry the desire to be respected into in, into prison, and I I take it even a step further and say, going into prison, there was a di- a desire to be feared, because those who are feared are not fucked with. Those who are feared are left alone, and and I was a slight fellow. I've never been. I think I was maybe 130 pounds soaking wet when I went into prison. And there were, you know, people in there that that looked like they were ready to go on stage at a Mr. Olympia contest. And so it was imperative in my mind that it was obvious I wasn't the biggest. I was never going to be the strongest. But what I can do, if I'm not the most dangerous, I'm going to be someone that when you look at, you categorize as that's not an easy win right there. I'd rather go someplace else and look for a victory because mm. he is going to be a problem. What was the age dynamic? Because you were really young going into prison. So what is the, the age dynamic and kind of span of a lot of these people in prison? Were people that had been there for years afraid of a 19, 20, 21 year old or or not really at all? The age dynamic is when I went in, I was 19. So you got people in there who are 18 sometimes as as young as 17, on through, you know, 90, 100, however long people live. So the age disparity, it runs the the, the gamut. And it's not about necessarily seeing a 19-year-old and being like, ooh, ooh, look at him, you know, fear him, be afraid of him. I was into some things. I was running with folks. It's not like I walked in the door by myself. I walked in the door wrapped in the cloak of you know, my homies, my gang, and the retribution that comes from a group if you fool with one of that group. Mm-hmm. So I just continued, you know, in, in prison and in, engaged in the activities that I was engaged in out in the community. And everybody in prison knows everybody. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, fairly mischievous when I was in the streets and, and, and some might say dangerous. And so there were people that I knew inside and I just continued to build upon that as a means of building on that reputation, as a means of building that persona to be able to hide behind so that you couldn't see just how fucking scared I was. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting that you use it as a way to shield other people of knowing how scared you were. And this is coming from a, a gentleman who was in prison with Charles Manson and was more feared than Charles Manson, if I'm correct, right? What's behind the story there with you and Charles Manson being in the same prison? I, I wouldn't say that I was more feared than Charles Manson, but there was a time in my term where I was classified by the administration as a, a, a little more worthy of being isolated than Charles Manson, I'll say. I was classified as what they refer to as standalone walk-alone. And what that means is you live in a cell by yourself. You go out to a yard for recreation by yourself. Anywhere you go, you are alone. You are shackled. You are handcuffed. You're escorted by a guard in the gun tower, has a mini-14 trained on you just in case you decide to do something stupid while you're shackled and handcuffed and they can blow your brains out. My judgment was that Charles Manson was somebody who was, you know, way more heinous and vicious than I was. This is the man responsible for Helter Skelter and and the Tate LaBianca murders and just massacring people all throughout the night, terrifying all across the countryside. He's way worse than I am. That's what my mind said. But my actions up to that point dictated that I be treated a little bit more callously than him. 
So I'm really curious with the amount of time you spent alone, how, what did that do to you? Is that when you did like came to know that you needed to do work on yourself or what was that period? When did you come to that realization? Well, during that time frame, I, I was in isolation. I was in the hole with a lot of time to think, of course. And, and what came to me was not necessarily that I had a lot of work to do on me. I wasn't quite, I hadn't quite matured to that level within myself, but I was able to see that I was my own worst enemy. And the decisions that I was making were a direct result of my situation. I was coherent enough to be able to identify that piece. I knew that something had to change. I didn't know exactly what that change would look like. I didn't have some epiphany that was like, oh yeah, I'm all screwed up on the inside and I need to start looking on that and thinking and meditating and everything is gonna be okay. What, what I started thinking was I need to start distancing myself from some of the people that I've been associated with and some of the things that I've been doing because it's going to be a hindrance in, in, in me getting into a position to be able to escape from prison. That was really the genesis for the, the, the change within me. It wasn't about, you know, I need to change and evolve into something. It was about I need to leave this shit alone so that the goon squad stops looking at me so tough and I can get down to a lower level prison and hop a fence. Mm. So some real Shawshank type stuff. <laughs> yes, sir. In terms of isolation, I'm, I'm really curious. Does it look like what it looks like in the movies? Like when they put someone in the whole single cellular room where there's nothing going on? Like, do you drive yourself mad? What does that actually look like for those listening? Well, it, for some people, it, it, it does have the potential to drive you mad, but you don't have to be in a single solitary cell by yourself. I see people out here in the community in civilized society who go mad every day. It is, it is dark. It is cold. It is lonely. It is an opportunity for you to look at yourself, if that's what you so choose to do, or find another means to escape into some alternate universe and trick your mind into another existence so that you don't have to face where you are and who you are and how you got here. It's an opportunity. It, for me, it was an opportunity to make some choices. Mm. Go crazy, grow up, or go into fantasy land, la la world, and just keep doing the same bullshit I, I had been doing. Mm. And I've seen people do one of all of those three things that I've just mentioned. I just, you know, made the choice not to go crazy. I had a little bit too much pride and ego and was scared. There again, fair. It's not that I couldn't go crazy. It's that I was too afraid to surrender to insanity and lose myself in my own mind out of fear of what other people might think about me. And then that brings us to the work, which is if you've watched the documentary Caring what other people think of you is one of the hindrances that a lot of people face when they're trying to open up from what it looks like. When did you get involved in that work? And then I'll ask you a few more questions about the specific stories and what you do with that process with that men's group. I got involved with that work in, in 2004. I got out of the hole. I got out of, of solitary confinement in 2000. I was sent to New Folsom and I officially was invited into those spaces, into those circles in 2004. So do you have to be invited in? I, I, I picked up that phrase on another podcast I listened to of you. Do you have to be invited or can you just go? 
no, you cannot just go. You've seen the film. You've seen the sorts of things that go on there. You can't just be like, oh, I want to go in there and see what's going on. It doesn't work like that. Somebody who is already in the group has to sponsor you and bring you in. It's, it's like the mob. Okay. You know, you're brought in by somebody who's already made. Okay. That, that, that was a really interesting note that I definitely wanted to ask you too. So what did this work do for you? How long did it take for you to open up and, and be comfortable sharing the vulnerable parts of yourself? Because in the movie, for context, you're like in there leading a lot of it. You're intense. Like I, I was like, I, you might stare into my soul on this podcast that we're doing right now, <laughs> the way you did in the documentary. So when did you start to open up? Because I'm sure it wasn't instantaneous. Well, for me, there, there it, what I have seen and what I have experienced is that it is a process. For me, it is a, it was a process. And no, I didn't walk through the door and just, you know, crack my chest open and bare my soul and said, you know, here I am. Take a look at, you know, all of the deep, dark parts of myself that I'm embarrassed about and that I'm ashamed of and, and where all of my fears are. But there was an immediate connection to other human beings. There was an immediate reverence for the space and how men who I viewed as hardcore killers and gangsters and not even you know killers and gangsters but just stand up men how they were able to hold other men in their places of pain where they were wounded and just love them exactly where they were at and the individual who's being held and loved didn't have to do anything but just be i immediately saw that and connected to that my spirit my soul connected to that and i knew that i was home so for me that piece was immediate and that is an amazing segue because I wanted to to definitely ask you about this idea of being able to have permission to open up, which seems to be a huge thing for men. Why do you think men need permission to feel, to express, to have those moments like they do in those men's groups in the work that you do why do men need permission to do that well it goes back to what i spoke about earlier you know growing up for myself and a lot of peers and a lot of men that i sat with that i sit with today men traditionally little boys young boys in our society don't get that permission we get permission to be strong we get permission to, we get told to stop crying. We get told to stop being babies, to stop being sissies. We don't often get encouraged to get in touch with our feelings. We don't often get encouraged to express where we're hurt, where we have pain, where we have fear, where we have trauma. We do get encouraged. The emotion that we do get encouraged to express is, is anger. And to a, a further extent, rage, we're not even often encouraged as little boys to express joy and to be happy. Because if you show too much of that, now you're just showing out. Now you're just acting silly. Why are you laughing so damn much? Quit acting like a little girl. Quit giggling so fucking much. Those are the messages that as little boys we receive. So, yeah, we need to learn. We need to be given permission. We need to learn what it's like to emote. We need to be have it demonstrated to us that it's okay to feel and we won't be judged or ridiculed or, or cast out of the society for that. 
When you did it in prison, was it like the documentary where you had men from outside of prison coming in to do the work with you? Or was that only for the documentary that you kind of crossed those two worlds? Every day, men come in from the inside. I was When I was inside, I was going to circle. I was sitting in circle Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, sometimes Sundays. Wow. And the men who came in to support were coming in from outside. What you see in the documentary, that big event happens two, on a good year, three times uh, a year. But we, we're sitting in group, the men are sitting in group year round, multiple times a week, mm -hmm. doing just what you see in the movie. Yeah, that was something that I thought was really well done and something that you've talked about a lot and that the world needs to realize is that Men outside also have the same restrictions on themselves because Brian, holy crap, like that was in in the documentary, a wild moment. And, you know, I watched it with, with my family and, and one of my family members didn't really understand the whole, because it is a very tribalistic almost feeling or look. And it could be hard for maybe someone to understand it, but I cried probably four or five times watching it or teared up at least. And I was making notes the entire time. So what can you paint of that picture of going of one, this idea of, of emotional prison is beyond just the physical prison. And then two, the power of going down into the wound and why it needs maybe that more, tribalistic, I don't know if there's another way you want to name it, approach to, to going down into the wound. Well, the, the word that I would use is probably ritualistic. Mm -hmm. and, and I would use ritualistic to point people back to uh, our ancestors collectively as humans before you know we got all uh, civilized and society got all industrialized and and we were just people living in a village we were you know very simple people living in a village the elders would come for the boys when it was their time and take them out away from the village into the wild and initiate them into the ways of manhood that there's a ritual there there's a process a rite of passage that is ritualistic and there's a crossing over there's a journey that's taken. And that's, you know, how you see it framed up, how you got the opportunity to see it framed up in the in in the weekend intensive. And it was filmed so tenderly and lovingly in that film. And the need for that is because there is a journey. There is a descent. I'm traveling. There's a descent I'm taking into the depths of myself. And I'm going all the way down into the well, into the wound. To begin to heal that wound because right next to that wound, right next to where my poison is, there's the medicine. It's just like a snake. The anti-venom comes from the poison. It comes from the venom. It doesn't come from someplace else. It comes right from the source. So there is a, a need to go deep down into self to face the wound, to begin to find what's needed to heal it so that I can come up out of that place with something new. I can come up out of that place with a, 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 a renewed sense of self, a renewed understanding of that wound. And I can come up armed with a new way of moving in the world from that space. I can come up with the tools equipping me to move with a greater sense of healing 
as opposed to moving through the world recklessly like a bull in a china shop from that wounded place. Yeah, and and exactly what you t- I actually just finished reading the book uh, Wild at Heart, which talks a lot about the wilderness nature kind of perspective. And I agree, as I've done more and more interviews, that the rites of passage is a really interesting component of manhood, whether it's, you know, as ritualistic as going out into the wilderness or just hearing the words, you are a man from a father figure, right? Like those are really important for young men to hear. And why did men join this this group is is another thing that I wanted to ask you. I heard you say on a show that it it's not you know to to reduce their sentence time. Like, what is the motivation or benefit to them? What do they see from this work? Was it seeing other people do it and learn more about themselves and have more empathy or in compassion, or what was kind of the motivation to to join it in the first place for a lot of newcomers? Well, uh, I'll, I'll take you back a bit and give you a bit of an insight into the origins of the group. The group was uh, the brainchild of a man named Patrick Nolan, who was serving life. And what he did was he started his own journey. He started his own ritualistic travel into the depths of self and to try and, and determine what his purpose was, knowing that he was or having resigned to the fact that he was going to die in prison. And the final straw for him was a, a massive race riot in 1996 in Folsom on B facility. There was a man that was killed. There were several under, other individuals who were, were very badly injured and taken to outside hospitals. And, and what Pat did was he had a vision of a place inside a prison where we were not killing each other, period. Not because of what we looked like, not because of what race we were, what our color were, what gang we were from. We were not killing each other. But what we were doing was creating a space to just see each other. He had already started to reach out beyond the walls and get in touch with the men's movement and men's work and what that was. So he invited some people from the outside, uh, Rob Albee and Don Morrison, to come in and bring what they were already doing out in the outside world into prison. And so it was just about finding a space where we could stop killing each other, where we could just see one another as human beings. So that's what it's all about. That's what it was for me. It was an opportunity for me to reconnect with Number one, myself and my own humanity, which would then in turn allow me to see you and and get in touch with your humanity. That's all it's about. Yeah, because in the movie, there's Aryan, there's people from different gang affiliations too, I believe. So Mm -hmm. did that translate outside of that group? Was there more peace between all those groups, even if it was just one or two or three individuals from those maybe gangs or internal groups? Or how did that create peace through a ripple effect? Well, the way that it had a ripple effect on the the prison that I was able to witness while I was there was uh, originally Pat went around to all of the leaders. He went around to all of the gang leaders and asked them to come. And short of them going, he asked for their permission for them to allow their people to go. And if you get enough of the right people in a room, you get what we call uh, uh, key influencers in the room, then that can go out and it can inoculate the culture. It's like a vaccine. 
and it spreads out onto the yard. I, you know, I spoke about this program being born out of a prison riot. I was on the yard in 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 C facility in New Folsom from 2000 to 2010, and during that entire decade, there was not one major incident across racial lines. And this was a maximum security prison, and you didn't have all eight or nine hundred people who were on the yard going to group. There were maybe at any one time, 80 people going to group at different times. So you don't need everybody involved. You don't need everybody bought in. But what you can do is have uh, uh, key individuals who are looking at themselves and looking at the world different, and they can influence others because that's what humans do. Humans, uh, not a lot of humans think for themselves or do their own things. We're pack animals and we follow the crowd. And we do what others say is cool. We, we follow trendsetters, unfortunately. So it was a very strategic approach is what it sounds like to, to even starting it and getting the right people in the room. Oh, Pat was, he was a sharp cat. It was very strategic and it, you know, took off from there. It took a life of its own. Yeah. So when was the video or documentary recorded for that context? 2009. Okay. And it only came out in 2017, correct? It came out in 2017. So it took eight years to produce or kind of what's the story? Well, uh, uh, the McCleary's, James McCleary, you see him. He's the man who does the chant in the beginning of the uh, call. Beautiful chant. Yes. He and his sons, Blankenfort Media, they created a, a media outlet to put this film together. They actually went, James actually went bankrupt bringing this movie to the finish line. Him and his sons just felt like this was something that needed to get out, that needed you know, to come into the world to bring some sort of uh, spotlight and or revelation onto what is possible and to share the magic and the medicine with the world. And so they worked hard. Again, you know, he lost everything because he believed in, they believed in, that family, the McCleary's believed in getting this movie out to show people what was possible. Mm-hmm. They weren't rich people. They, they weren't people that had, you know, access to you know, unlimited capital. So, you know, working on a shoestring budget and, and cobbling things together here and there and finding other people who believed in it and bringing the resources together to put it, put it all in place. It, it took a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And thank goodness that they did because one of the things I realized in watching it was one, the emotional intelligence of the facilitators blew my mind away. And the other part was the physical intimacy in a lot of ways between men and how important that was. I remember there was a time where I think it's Kiki, he was he was biting his lip and everyone's like, why are you stop biting your lip, let it out. Mm-hmm. And there was another time where they noticed that the jaw was getting super tense and they said like, and they touched the jaw and they, to loosen it up. What is that like to be in those moments? And can you talk a little bit about the importance of that physical intimacy in those moments? Cause that was something I really wanted to get your thoughts on. Yeah, you're talking about, I remember very clearly, you're talking about Baradaji paying attention to somatically where Kiki was at and energetically where an individual is and how uh, a person, how I can hold energy. We all hold energy. And if I'm being present with another person and if I'm there in that moment with another person, then I'm tuned in and keyed in to where they're at. 
and I'm paying attention to all of the uh, communications, all of the cues. It's not just what's verbally being said, but what physically is being said and not being said. And those things need a release. And without the opportunity to have a release, that's where that tension stays in there and holds in there. And you see a person, you know, all bound up and people suffer from various physical and, and, and health maladies because of from holding tension and holding that sort of energy in. So, again, it goes into giving a person permission. To sink into and relax into what it is they're feeling, you saw there where that young man was uh, he had some uh, some grief in him. He had some sadness in him, but he was holding it so tight. He needed permission to be able to sink into it and feel it and let go and just surrender into it. Mm. Another part I'm curious about is it almost took all of you to hold each man down as they went through their process, as they went into the wound. Is that like just when you're down there and you're fighting is that like the strongest you think a man could be when they're trying to fight against going down to that wound that they need five, six, seven men to, to kind of hold them down? Like what's the reasoning behind that process? Well, I'll, I'll say the strongest that a man can be in my experience is not when he's fighting against that, but when you see him surrender into it, when you see him embrace what's underneath what he's fighting what he's doing is actually fighting to keep from going there. The strength comes when he relaxes and just gives over to what it is he's feeling. And the purpose of, of having you know bodies like that on hand is so that an individual can feel safe. Because often, you know, times as a man, a good excuse to not release emotion, to not release that energy is to convince myself and to tell others, well, I can't let this out because if I let this out, it can't be contained. Somebody's gonna get hurt. It's not safe to let this out. So there needs to be a container of safety created where a man feels safe enough that no matter what he brings, the container can hold it. And once he feels safe and once he's certain and sure that the container can hold it, that's when you start to see the release of that energy. And sometimes it looks like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine guys holding, containing another man. But what they're really doing is embracing him and, and letting him feel the safety to completely let go and to completely be free with the emotion. And then his strength, like I said, really comes when he's fought through that and he's gotten to the other side and he sees something other than the anger, he sees something other than the rage and he's willing to embrace it. That is what takes strength. Mm. So a follow up to that would be how can men in their day to day life right now give themselves permission to feel and maybe if it's not the same system or, or structure as it would be that inside circle is doing, what would permission look like to, to maybe someone who's working on themselves, mm -hmm. trying to overcome, but mm -hmm. doesn't have that group or that support? Well, I, for me, I, I, what I would say is begin by questioning what's coming up for you in any given situation when start to work with what you can tap into. And if that just happens to be anger, road rage, whatever, somebody cutting in front of you in the line at the grocery store, 
why is that pissing you off? Why does that anger you when this cat just cut in front of you in line? Why did that anger you when this individual just cut you off on the expressway heading home? What about that angers you? Oh, well, you know, they're rude. They're this, they're that. They did this. They're doing that. They're not being, you know, a considerate of what I'm feeling and where I'm trying to go. Okay. And what about that disturbs you? Just keep asking those questions and keep going deeper and keep going deeper because sooner or later you're going to get to a deeper truth. Oh, well, you know, the truth is when he cut me off and I judged that to be inconsiderate and he was an asshole and he didn't care about what I was, you know, had going on and where I was trying to get to. The truth is he was holding the mirror up for me and I saw where I show up in the world inconsiderate and I don't care about others and what they have going on. And so what that anger really is masking is the shame that I have for myself when I do that. Do you think there's such thing as like healthy shame? I, I, I don't know that there's a such thing as unhealthy shame because shame's an emotion. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a, a such thing as unhealthy love or unhealthy fear or unhealthy joy. It, it, it's not the emotion that's unhealthy. It's the choices that I make that I attach and put on the emotion that can be unhealthy, but emotions are not unhealthy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes, I, that's something I was, I was listening to your episode with Dan Doty and you talked a lot about shame and I was like, I, I need to figure out this, this shame thing. That's mm-hmm. one of my goals in life is to figure out shame and how it works and what the devil it is and what you just said blew my mind. So in terms of the work and the emotional intelligence that that you had and that group has in the facilitation of the circles, how have you seen that translate to your life outside of prison, after prison? How do you, does self work for you now? Mm, how does it work for me now? Well, for number one, working on myself freed me from my internal prison and ultimately it freed me physically from prison because I was serving life. So without working on myself internally, I would not have been able to access the parts of myself that needed to be healed to ensure that, you know, I could sit before a parole panel of former law enforcement officials and have them sign a piece of paper saying that they would not have any problem with me being their next door neighbor. Having done all of the things that I had done in my life up to that time, that's a direct result of me doing my own work. And how it shows up in my life today is now six going on seven years later, I'm still in the community. I have not returned to uh, custody. I'm married with children and I'm working and giving back in society and supporting others as they seek to try and save their own lives. It is in how I live my life. It's in how I make choices. It's in how I see myself and how I see others. It's just apparent and obvious in the way that I walk, talk, breathe, drink, sleep. It's an ongoing thing. It's a lifestyle. That is my lifestyle now. My lifestyle is not now hitting people in the head with claw hammers. My lifestyle is in supporting people. Can you walk us through that parole hearing or that panel experience? Mm -hmm. Just how much you have to communicate because it seemed from what I'd heard in another show is it takes a lot of self-awareness which doesn't really seem to be offered to you as much as maybe it could be in a healing and in a healing model or or a model that's supposed to prepare you for for life after prison. 
Well, a, a healing model or, or the model, if you're talking about inside circle, it's not it's not a program that is designed. Its purpose is not to prepare you to go and, and present in front of a parole board. And it's not designed. It's not a program. Let me say that it's not a program. It is a for me, it's a way of life for the men who I have sat in circle with. It's a way of life. It's about trying to figure out where I'm fucked up. It's about other men trying to figure out where they're fucked up and trying to heal those places. That's it. And what it prepares me to do is to have a relationship with myself. What it prepares me to do is to take agency over my life and begin to make decisions that work for me. And the process of going, you know, before a parole panel is one of sitting in front of, you know, a few people and talking about everything that you've ever done in life from the day you stepped out of the womb up until the moment you step through that door into that room and being able to articulate to them your understanding about every aspect of your life and what every motivating factor was behind everything that you did since you've been on the face of this planet. Wow. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> like, I, I don't even lot. think I could list those things. <laughs> it's, it's a, I mean, I've been in, in parole. I went to parole board three times. The first time I went, it lasted for, shit, six and a half hours. The next one was five hours, and the final one was two and a half hours. So you're sitting there for hours, and they're reading into the record everything that you, I mean, every time you got... Uh, uh, suspended from school, every rock you ever threw or win, everything you've ever done that is on record, you're walking through it and they want to know everything about it. Why, not why you did it, but what is it in you that allowed you to rationalize or normalize something doing to being able to do something like that? And do you understand the impact of that? Do you understand the lives that you affected? And you need to be able to articulate genuinely and authentically that you understand this because they're not throwing you softball. These are people who are former wardens, former sheriffs, district attorneys. These are people who are professional human lie detectors. They do not snort bullshit. Yeah. So what are they expecting from you? Like, how do you learn to articulate and what what would be a satisfying answer to them that would get you cuz you said you went through it 3 times so mm -hmm. so what would that look like to to them if you went back to that first time and second time why do you think you weren't given parole then i don't think that i i don't it's not that i don't think i know i wasn't given parole then because i wasn't ready to be paroled i still hadn't developed a healthy relationship with myself to understand what my motivating and causative, uh, causative factors were I still had blind spots. I still had things inside of me that until I faced them would have been very dangerous and detrimental back in society. And mm -hmm. what it is that they're looking for is they're looking for the truth. And there and, and and the cold thing about it is there are no they're not asking any trick questions in there. Everything that they're asking about is about you. They're asking they were always asking questions about me. So it was it, there were no secrets. There were no curveballs. There was nothing, you know, no trap doors. Every question, the entire process was about me. So it was about me finding relationship with myself and being able to share who I was with them that I knew who I was, that I understood who I was. 
that I was able to come to terms and look at who I was and be open mm. with that shame, those places where I might have shame and don't want to talk about. It. I want to talk about how I've been good and I ain't stabbed nobody in the last 10 years, but that, let's not talk about, you know, everything that happened up to that cuz that, you know, let's just sweep that up under the rug. See, that's shame. Mm. And if I'm ashamed and I can't talk about those things, what's to say that those things won't rear their heads and come out and bite somebody in the ass? And now you're after prison, you're out. I'm curious, because you said you're married, you have two two children. Mm-hmm. What does, did that allow you to create an open, upfront, honest relationship with your wife after? Like what, how did that translate to your personal life, being that open in front of a parole or doing all that self-work in while you were in prison? Well, it it helps me be open and honest with them. It helps me be able to have a relationship with them without all of the fluff. It it cuts a lot of the, you know, poppycock out out of the way. We can get just straight to it. This is what it is. This is who I am. This is who you are. Do we want to go in this direction together? If so, yes. How are we going to get there? Okay, let's go. Mm. There's not a lot of pretense. I don't have an, I don't have enough time left on the face of this planet to engage in pretense. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I, and I love how you don't really. It doesn't seem like you hold too much ill will towards the system or the structure. You're focused primarily on getting the most out of the rest of your life and serving for the rest of your life. And you had a, you had someone on your own podcast, which everyone should go check out now. Eldra hosts it for the Inside Circle. And it was talking about that rehabilitation. And one thing that really caught my ear, it was with the woman who helps men after prison, I think, rehabilitate a little bit. I might Sheila be Bruno. getting the context wrong. Yeah. But the, the idea of responsibilities and how mm-hmm. there are no responsibilities in prison, you're told exactly what to do. How did you adjust to responsibilities after prison and how did you get used to and acclimatized to the day-to-day role of a free man? Mm -hmm. I'm still getting used to it. It's something that I'll probably be getting used to for the rest of my life. And hell, I know people who've never been to prison, doesn't barely even know how to spell prison. They're still learning. They're still getting used to what responsibilities are and what it means to be a a husband, a father, a son, and all of these sorts of things. That's something that points to the human condition. It's not necessarily a prison condition. We've got uh, a situation, a global situation right now where we're all collectively dealing with a pandemic and people are learning how to deal with responsibilities. People are learning how to deal with reacclimating to normal and what normal is and and reframing in their mind what normal is. So that is something that, you know, as a human being, you know, I'll probably always be doing. Mm. And as a father, what are you doing to end that cycle of trauma to your family? Obviously you talked about it now, but does it look different now that you're actually a father and with a family? What does that look like to you now to end that cycle? What it looks like to me to end that cycle or to to at least try and stem the tide is to recognize what is my stuff and what's my work so that I don't project my stuff onto the next generation. 
and cast onto them the things that I have taken on and that have been cast onto me by generations behind me or in front of me, generations in front of me. So what's key for me and the main thing that shows up is making certain that I'm aware of where the line is between my stuff and them so that I'm not putting my baggage and luggage onto them because the world's going to give them enough stuff. So I don't want them carrying mine too. What's been your biggest takeaway as a father so far? My biggest takeaway as a father is that is how smart children are and how they are teachers and they're people. They're not, you know, objects that I don't own them. I'm responsible for them, you know, on a lot of different levels. And they're humans with personalities and with spirits and with opinions and with ideas. And that, you know, that really I, I have a responsibility to respect that and to nurture that. I love it. And looking back at your life now, is there anything you would change about how you got to where you are today? Yes. Yes, there is. What I would change about how I got to where I am today is how many people got hurt in the process of me getting where I got today. That is probably, that's the only thing that I would change. Mm. To follow up on that, if you hadn't hurt so many people do you think you'd be able to heal as many people as you're healing now? I don't know if I would be able to, and, and, and to clarify, I don't heal people. What I do is create a space and engage with them to co-create a space where they're able to tap into their own healing. And would I be able to do that? Yeah, I probably would be able to engage in that co-creation because there was a lot of hurt that I suffered. And so the, what I tap into when I'm in those spaces is my own experience, my own hurt. And then I, I wanted to, I'm not sure if this is a, a question that you've ever gotten before, but in the documentary, your, your name is Vegas, or is mm -hmm. that like, where did that name come from? What's the context behind that? I wasn't sure if that was more of a, a street name, but I definitely was, was curious about that myself. Oh, yeah, it was a street name. I got that in the street when I was gangbanging. And, and Vegas, you know, uh, is a city that's known for gambling. And I used to be somebody who used to gamble a lot. I, and when I say gamble a lot, I mean I used to gamble with life situations. The higher the stakes, the more comfortable I was with the gamble. Oh, this is something that, that I or we could die doing? Yeah, shit, I'll do it. And then... Lastly, Eldra, I want to th say thank you so much for your time. What can people do to support the work that you're doing, support you, and support Inside Circle? Uh, well, Inside Circle is a nonprofit organization, so we'll take all the money that we can get. The government will, will give you a receipt, and you won't have to pay taxes on that money. It's completely tax deductible. But uh, yeah, you can go to InsideCircle.org and check out the work that we're doing. Sign up for a, a drop-in group. We host weekly drop-in groups for anybody from the community. Check out our pen pal program. Sign up to uh, become a pen pal for somebody on the inside. Listen to the Inside Circle podcast and uh, yeah, follow us awesome. on social I'm media. I'm going to definitely, I'll, I'll link everything. I'll link the social media. I'll link Inside Circle. I'll highlight your podcast in the description of this podcast. And I didn't know about that PayPal or pen pal thing. So I'm going to sign up for sure about that. Are the meetings that you're doing right now virtual or like anyone can join? They are virtual. Anyone can join. They're hosted every Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. Oh Pacific Standard Time. Awesome. I'm going to sign up for one of those, I believe, if I can, and definitely link that in the description below as well. And again, everyone, 
the first 10 people that message me from this episode that say they want to watch the documentary, the work, I will pay for you to watch it on YouTube, Amazon, wherever you can. But Eldra, is there anything, any last words you'd like to leave with the audience? Uh, last words I would like to leave with the audience is uh, love yourself. Take care of yourself. Everybody out there, take care of yourself. Know that you're worth it. Invest in you and, and don't let anybody tell you what you can or can't do. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Eldra. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the work you've been doing yourself, your life story. I really appreciate it and was very excited and nervous for this for this recording just because I, I loved the work that you were doing and think it's amazing. Well, thank you for having me, Luke. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode of The Imperfect Pod. If you would like to find out more about today's guest, you can go to InsideCircle.org. You can watch the video, the work, as I mentioned at the start. I will pay for 10 people to watch this documentary. It's that important of a show, documentary, and journey into men's life in prison and why this work is so important. So again, email me, Luke at TheImperfectPod.com. Instagram, The Imperfect Pod. Those are the two places you can connect with me to say that you'd like to watch it and I'll find a way to give you the money or, or whatever to watch the show for the first 10 people. And uh, you can follow Eldra and the work organization, The Inside Circle on Instagram at inside underscore underscore circle. I believe it's going to be linked in the description below, but I believe I have the right number of underscores in that message. And thank you everyone so much. If you could leave a review, that'd be great. But if not, I'll see you all next week.